nothing transforms from a place of depletion. The babies cannot develop all their energy shunted towards survival unless we help them develop as they're surviving. And I was in survival mode. I wasn't developing anymore. And I had to kind of find my way back toward that, if that makes sense. So I, I went to the retreat. I came home feeling like, wow, that's really when I started trying to be more intentional in my life. And in the NICU was after that retreat. And then I just kept following the little things. So I very imperfectly tried this intentional practice. I got better at it in the NICU. I tried to just get good at the moment because honestly, anything else felt overwhelming. But I could commit to a moment and say, I'm going to try to be intentional for the next, you know, five minutes. Or when we sit down to dinner, just have one thought in my head other than slinging food to hungry people. And so I could kind of deal with a moment and I could deal with myself if I messed up the moment and thought, oh, I just didn't handle that well and thought, oh, well, this is a new one. Look at this. So I just really tried to get good at the moment. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Okay, let's take a moment out to thank our next sponsor. For those of you that have never tried a meal kit, it's really can make a difference, especially for those of us out there like myself who are not completely confident about cooking. This year, it was a coincidence that Sue's sister, who also is shy and kind of anxious about cooking, was able to put on this huge holiday meal for a whole crew that was really delicious. And it wasn't until after dinner, as we were talking about how good everything was, that she let us know that one of her secrets was that she had used HelloFresh. She said she felt comfortable and confident putting on the entire meal, that everything was pre-portioned. They had just the spices and the detailed instructions. They had it all planned out, and she was able to do it really confidently. And so it was such a win-win. And I totally relate to her. I am not a confident cook, but I love being able to get a kit that I will stretch my, uh, my comfortability because I'll do things that I might not otherwise cook, and I feel really confident. I have just what I need, just the right ingredients. It actually saves you money. It's less expensive than going out or having delivery. And you're not going to the grocery store picking up all these extra things you might not otherwise pick up. You have just the amount for the amount of meals that you're wanting. So take control of your time, your budget. And actually, it's also delicious. So go to HelloFresh.com slash TU21 and use the code TU21. And they're going to give you 21 free meals plus free shipping. That is a good deal. So... It's HelloFresh.com slash TU21. Hey, welcome aboard, Sue Ludwig. Uh, we are so happy to have you here at Therapist Uncensored. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. So my guest today was actually recommended by a mutual... Is she a friend of yours? Is she a colleague? Is she... I would say a friend now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same here, actually. Joe Bolte-Taylor. And when she insisted that the two Sues should meet and we would uh, love each other, I didn't hesitate. And it's turned out to be very productive. So she is president and founder of the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, a licensed occupational therapist, and a certified neonatal therapist. So you might be thinking, why in the world is there a NICU therapist what does that have to do with attachment? So I think that we're going to get into that, in particular about regulation. 
you talk a lot in the book, by, which by the way, I really enjoyed. I thought it was so personable and relatable. But you talk a lot about energy. And actually, it was a Jill Bolte-Taylor quote, right? Like, be aware of the energy that you bring to the space. So maybe we can launch from there and what you mean by that and how, and don't get nervous about, you even put it in your book, which I kind of laughed, like this isn't woo-woo, weird, that kind of energy, but actual, real, the way I think of it is like biosynchronization. But, you know, that quote, what it, what it did for you and what do you mean when you talk about energy? Yeah, so when I first heard uh, Joe Bolte-Taylor's quote, you know, please take responsibility for the energy you bring into this space. It just stopped me in my tracks because I thought, what does that even mean? And I had never thought of being responsible for my energy. It was just a perspective I'd never had. And I was trying to be more intentional in my life in general. And I started with that quote in mind and kind of going into the NICU, going up to my patients and thinking, what does it look like in this moment to be responsible for the energy I'm bringing to these tiny patients? And by energy, the way that I kind of wrapped my brain around it was a couple things. One was just, you know, the energy that we all have in a day. You know, we're healthy, we're rested, we have a lot of energy. If we're, if we're sick, if we're depressed, if we're other things, we may have low energy. So that was one type of energy I was considering as I was going to the bedside. And then the other type was just sort of the vibe. Kind of, you know, everything has a vibe. Restaurants we yeah, go to. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, games, the clinical, that's the clinical yeah. term. Yes, vibe. Exactly. And so what was I bringing to the babies? And I knew that that was of utmost importance because whatever I was bringing to them was, of course, going to help regulate them or dysregulate them potentially. And so I had to be extra aware of what I was bringing. While I was, a, I thought, a, you know, a really good clinician before that moment, I'd never really thought about it through that lens right before I put my hands on a baby. And so I had made a concerted effort to stop before I touched a baby, before I went and opened the portholes to an incubator and thought, what kind of energy do I want to bring? And what kind of energy belongs in this moment to this baby? And what doesn't belong in this moment for this little person? And so that started to change how I showed up at the bedside. We're for sure in this conversation going to get to how this translates into human regulation, I mean, adult regulation between couples, relationships, all those things. But before we go there, let's go back to the NICU, because this is where these ideas really took hold. And can you tell us a little bit about why regulation is so important in that setting? And just kind of paint a picture of what that looks like. And also just other quick thing, I'm sorry, all these questions. When you ask yourself the question, what kind of energy do I want to, do I want to bring to this patient? What would be examples of answers to that question that you ask yourself? Yeah. So to start with that, I mean, the, the answer to that question for me, depending on the patient, might be something like the energy I want to bring to you know, baby Emma is something that feels like safety. The energy I want to bring is something that is very calm and intentional and grounded. So I would actually set intentions that would help me ground that energy in the intention. I might say, you know, my intention for this next 20 or so minutes is for baby Emma to feel safe and protected and supported through things that are stressful. So I would sort of try to actualize it that way in each moment. I mean, wouldn't that be a great intention for all of these babies? Or, you know, is it more specific than that? Or because these are little fragile, teeny tiny 
as a matter of fact, I haven't mentioned yet, the name of your book is Tiny Humans, Big Lessons. So these are these tiny humans that are fighting. You call them feisty. (laughs) Yes, and and you're right. The intention would always be to keep them safe, of course, or the energy would be always safety. But, you know, it kind of varies on the age they are, which sounds funny when most of them are still pre full term. But uh, there's a big difference between a baby that's maybe 24 weeks gestation and just overtly fragile. Every single part of them is fragile. And a baby that might be closer to being full term who has just a different capacity. So for example, a baby that is closer to full term and is healthier now, my intention might be I really want to connect with them. So my intention might be more about connection or their attention or bringing something that is just supportive of that stage of their development. So I think that it seems odd from the outside to think they're that different, but every week makes a huge difference in where they are developmentally and what their brain development is. And I think that that would lead me to feel like I could bring a different level of energy to them. You know, the the more stable the baby, the little more sort of upbeat, if you will, energy I could bring uh, versus just this really grounded, calm energy to a really fragile 24-weeker. Of course, I can't help but think about therapists doing this before their adult patients, like taking this pause of what kind of energy. And it can make that big of a difference with these teeny tiny ones within days. Days can make a difference. A week can make a difference. But I also think about developmentally for everybody that we see and for each of us, we're all at a different place and being attuned to where any of us are. I just really kind of love how that this is going to keep echoing back to adult world. So what do they look like when they, like what, do you, what, what kinds of signs are you looking for around being on the right track or not? Yeah, so let's take that, you know, a baby that's maybe only 24 weeks and super fragile. So we're talking under two pounds, very thin skin, very fragile tissue paper skin, very little muscle tone at all yet has developed. So just a very fragile human. And so that baby would likely would be in an incubator or they would be on their mom's chest, ideally. <laughs> but uh, so I would come up to that incubator. I would, I had a little mantra I went through to set my intention and, and ground my energy. And then I would always call them, even at that tiny gestational age, I would always say their first name first before I would touch them. Because again, they're in this really fragile state and just touching them would be start too startling for their system. So what I know first is to grade that sensory input and first do something verbal and soft like, hi, Emma. And it also was just a sign of their personhood, you know, respecting that this was a person, not baby in bed B. And then so I would say hi to them and then I would put my hands on them in a very firm but contained way to provide human touch because we know from the research that babies in the NICU mostly receive what we would call procedural touch where we're doing things to them to take care of them suctioning diaper changing you know the nurses are doing a lot of that of course but just in general they're being taken care of and and those things are stressful so we want to as much as possible provide them with this human touch first and then I would be in partnership with the nurse so that while she's doing those tasks that are necessary medically, I would use my hands and my observation skills to watch for these subtle signs of stress from these pre-verbal babies to help them co-regulate, to help them self-regulate in any small capacity they could. So for example, 
they're going to be calmer if they're in a flexed position. But if you just kind of go in and turn them over, they're going to sprawl into sort of this startled, extended position. And if a nurse is by herself doing that, she doesn't have enough hands to do what she has to do and keep the baby's whole body stable. So I would use my hands, keep them tucked in flexion, maybe let them grasp my finger, all things that are regulating to that baby's nervous system and motor system. So we would work in like a dance the whole time during care to help that baby's system experience that as less traumatic, potentially supportive, hopefully, and keep their whole system more regulated than if we did not do any of those things. And little things like this can be life or death at this stage. Is that too dramatic to say? Well, I don't know if we can always say A plus B equals C in that way, but what we know is that say we do let them sprawl out, like if the nurse is alone and, and she can't you know, keep them as contained and things, their motor system, their arms and legs and their whole system will work to try to regulate itself, but they're so fragile, they really can't do this on their own and it's exhausting. And so if that motor system becomes more exhausted, then they will show those stress signs in their autonomic system, which is when they'll turn blue and drop their heart rate and and have apnea and, you know, have these episodes of, of not breathing and things. So it's all interconnected. So the more we can support them, the less likely they are going to unravel down to those autonomic stress signs. And so it seems like if you were looking from the outside, like, oh, I'm being nice and helping the nurse. <laughs> but when you know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what that does to support the motor system while we're doing these things, we know that we're going a long way toward mitigating or preventing that deeper signs of stress and hopefully not letting the baby system have to go into a stress response every single time they receive care, which can be every two hours at the least probably in that small of a baby. Man, I can actually kind of remember it in my body. I had one, one of my three was ended up in the NICU and we've talked about, and you mentioned in the book that it's very different now, but with the sounds and the light, you know what I mean? We were only allowed in for these short periods of time. And, and in just thinking about the fragility that you're talking about, now this was a full-term baby, but just the difference that it can make for sure. And you mentioned touching them with a firm containing hand. I was sort of imagining in my mind, like cupping, you know what I mean? Like, or like holding, like, can you show, can you show us what that looks like? And maybe we can verbalize that. Yes. We always kind of do this, like we're tucking. So we'd have one hand on their little bottom and including their feet, including their feet, most likely like flex their little feet up toward their bottom and have one hand kind of containing them that way. And then one hand on their head. And again, it would be firm and just still, meaning we're not stroking them because that light touch can be too overstimulating for their nervous system at that age, at least. We're talking about small babies right now, but and it would just hang out there, firm hand on the head and then tucking their extremities in and just hanging out. And, and that, it's almost like a hug. We call it a hand hug because that's sort of the feeling that it is. And we would just ugh, rest there and let them sort of settle into being touched and make sure that we'd be watching them for any signs of stress. And then when they were nice and settled, no stress cues, then we would kind of take them in that contained position and slowly turn them over. Instead of back in the day, we used to take head and bottom and literally flip them over like a little pancake. And so they would sprawl out and heart rate and 
it, it, respiratory rate, everything went crazy. Back then, the thought was like, this is stressful, so let's get it over with in a hurry and then get them settled again. But we didn't yet know the cost of not doing that all along. And so over time, we learned a lot more about their neurodevelopment and, and what stress and chronic stress did to their brains. And so we learned slower, slower, you know, a more contained, giving them rest breaks when they have stress instead of like pushing them through it because they don't have the capacity to push through it. You know, as you were describing that, I can just so feel it and feel the containment and the warmth of it. Totally get it. And, you know, to me, it's like kind of being in the womb. That's part of that containment because they're supposed to be squeezed at that point, right? Really tight. And it makes me even think of, again, with adults, and it's not just folks that are neuroatypical. Like I was even thinking of the hand on the head, just sort of the application of that or whatever their comfort signals are. I think of a uh, Temple Grandin's uh, squeeze machine. Yeah, yes. I don't know if you're <laughs> yes, yeah, and and we all need you know adults respond to that proprioceptive input as well, you know, and so it's very similar in that it's calming to their nervous system as well. It's just the, what it looks like has to be graded, obviously, because of what their capacity at the time. Yeah. Well, this is so compelling. Can you go through that again, but with an older baby that's still a teeny baby? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what your thinking is and what that looks like. Yeah. So let's pretend this baby's now maybe 33 weeks postmenstrual age. So still seven weeks preterm. So still a little person, but just could be way more stable than that other baby, of course, if they don't have any other issues. And so with a baby of, of that gestational age, if they are stable, they might be in a little bassinet. They might be still in like little positioning aids. We keep them in, but I would be able to go up. I would still say their name. I would still put my hands on them in the same way first just to help them wake up or transition from a sleep state to a drowsy to more of a quiet alert state would be one of the goals. Um, whereas that 24-weeker doesn't have all of those states available yet, most likely. And so with the little bit older baby, I would try to help them through that transition of state. And then I would, while I'm taking care of them, I might be changing their diaper, getting them ready to be held, to feed or things like that. And so I would be able to take them out of their little positioning aids. I would be able to support them, but they would have more capability at that point in their, say, their motor system. So instead of being all extended, they have a little flexor tone now. You know, they can bring their hands more toward their middle. Their legs have some flexion in them. They have a more capable motor system and they have a more capable autonomic system. And so I may be able to have a more interactive experience with that baby, still graded, I'm not going to be ringing bells and <laughs> having loud conversations, but I could read to them. A, I could, a surprise party <laughs> yes, or anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not parading around, but, but I could, a baby that age, you know, I could swaddle in a blanket. I could pick up and hold in my lap. We may work on pre-feeding, oral feeding skills or things like that. So just a much different interaction than a baby that is so overtly fragile at the younger ages. And again, my energy might be able to be a little more up. If they are able to attend visually, I might be able to have them just look. They don't have a fully developed visual system yet, but they start to look a little bit more focused. And, and I would just, again, still be grading that input. So I'm not going to have them try to look at things visually and have a lot of noise and try to feed them and all the things at once. It'd be very graded input so that they can manage it. So then let's fast forward to a 
baby close to full term. And just, if you don't mind, just kind of doing that again. It's really interesting and informative, is, again, uh, for adults, I think. But go ahead. Yeah, and one thing I want to not forget to say is that the main goal always is really to connect the baby with their parents. So a lot more than used to be in the past, for sure. And so whether they are at 24 weeks, 32 weeks, 37 weeks, that's really the goal. So that if the parent is there at the bedside, I would be helping them do all those things I'm talking about. And I would help narrate for them and help teach them what stress cues look like and self-regulation looks like and co-regulation so that they are empowered to start noticing their own baby's cues and start telling me. I want them to become the expert telling me what they're seeing uh, over time would be the goal. So didn't want to forget that. Yeah, so in that closer to term or term, full-term baby, if they are still in the NICU, you know, that baby, we could be working on things like we would still approach the same way. We're still going to grade and speak first and touch second and things. But that baby might have be starting to really visually focus and, and look around and be able to engage in um, really looking at you and you're talking to them at the same time and those things might not be causing them any stress. They might be very regulated by those things at that age. They have a much more capable motor system, autonomic system, and then also their attention and interaction is coming on board, that higher level ability. They're eating unless there's something else wrong. They would be breast or bottle feeding by then. So able to engage in much higher level activities and interactions and complicated interactions in comparison. And so our role as, as a neonatal therapist is really to kind of continue to bridge the gap developmentally between what that infant was system expects to have in their environment and what they're getting by being in this strange environment of the NICU. And how can we bring their development along best we can in this new environment and, and mitigate the problems they might experience from that loud, bright, bustling NICU and how do we modify the environment? And then how do we modify every interaction so that we're thinking of their development, not just right then, because that makes a huge difference in their next 10 minutes of life, how they tolerate things, but also we're thinking 10 months, 10 years from now. Because how that baby system is collectively being wired in the NICU experience is laying down a, a lot of important neural pathways for, of course, later on. And there are just some things because their brain is not even full term yet. Some of them are one shot deal. Most of them are very plastic, but of course those early experiences are so important. And those full term babies, it's just super sweet to see them kind of have that greater capacity to interact, to be in a healthier spot, that breathing and surviving is not their only direction of their energy all day, every day. Now they get to have other things, yeah. A word, a word that you used in the book was feisty, and I, I really love that. You also just mentioned the idea of teaching co-regulation. So what does co-regulation look like at, let's just go ahead and have the baby full term. You know, this is parents of young children. Some parents would say, what do you mean co-regulate? They just are sitting there, you yeah. know. <laughs> uh, what should parents look for? Like what, and what are stress responses? What do stress responses look like in a young baby? Yeah, so in that full-term scenario, the stress responses are pretty similar along, but they'll be more dramatic in different age sections. But for a full-term baby, I mean, some of the stress responses will still be, you know, that big motor startle, if they hear startled by something abrupt like a sound or movement where their extremities fly out, 
They may have a, a really strong like hand finger splay where their hands are spread, fingers are spread apart with a lot of extension. One really subtle cue of a even a full-term healthy baby is just if they're really looking at you and, and attending to you, but say the environment becomes really overstimulating, they'll just avert their gaze. So the gaze that was right on you just kind of looks, they look to the side. It's just a subtle sign of, I'm a little bit stressed. And they may go over there and then they may come back if they're able to kind of regulate, but they may not. And it may start a cascade of other stress cues depending on the environment. So as a parent, say I am holding my baby and a lot of people come around and if we're still in the NICU, pretend they're in rounds and rounds typically are loud. A lot of people, if your baby then kind of does that little gaze aversion, it's just like, hmm, interesting, noted. And you wouldn't want to add any extra sensory input at that point, but you could be holding them, giving them that firm touch to help, again, co-regulate, which means you're using your, as a parent, your energy, your groundedness is going to translate at some level to your baby. So if you're really high energy, that is going to perhaps stress that infant out. And if you're really grounded energy and calm, that will have an effect on your infant. So humans are different that way where we're meant to co-regulate instead of this human infant being alone and trying to develop, we're meant to be with you know, a parent or an adult. And so the way that we show up and how calm we are, if we're moving slowly, they're able to sort of absorb that and move with that. If we're really brisk, we're ta -ta 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 -ta, changing the diaper, whipping them around, all that, they're going to pick up on that. And depending on the stability and capabilities of that infant, they might tolerate that and they might show us some of those signs of stress. Mm -hmm. That's really lovely. And, you know, and I was also thinking in terms of even these teeny humans are also co-regulating us. Like we're impacting them, but this is what you're teaching your parents, but learning to notice how they communicate because they can't tell us with words, but they're signaling more or less the same, you know, come closer, step away. How would you say it from your discipline or from your perspective as far as the baby co-regulating the parent for that direction? So what was startling to me in my own journey was, you know, I had all these observational skills as a neonatal therapist, but when I tried to really be intentional about bringing that, being responsible for my energy, I realized that the babies were doing that. If I was really tuned in, because of what they needed from me and because of what they were showing me, I then had to just bring myself way down, you know. So their necessities, their needs really told my system what needed to happen. And when I fully understood the gravity of that for them, it changed how serious and consistent I was in what I brought to them. And it also changed which is hard, how hard it was to see other people not be that way. And I'm not acting like I was floating around on some perfect cloud and no one else was by any means. But as you go along that journey and you're, it's hard to explain very concisely in care to even people who do this every day for a living, the power they have to positively affect that baby's development and how important it is to not just be chit-chatting over top of the baby about what the heck ever, not realizing that they're slowly kind of falling apart because of the extra noise when we're not quite paying attention and we move them a little too fast. So being that really attuned to them was the most powerful teacher to me 
and what it meant to be really centered and grounded and how to show up for them as they needed. So in that way, they were definitely regulating me. So, you know, we talk a lot about self-care and we want you to check in with yourself before you offer help to someone else. Rest when you need rest, ask for what you need, and most definitely say yes to things that make you feel good. Our sponsor, your Dipsia, can help transport your mind to a world where you can relax and treat yourself to a surprise or your known deepest desires. Dipsia is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. There's something for everyone. So if you've lost touch with your own sexiness, want to spice up a long-term relationship, or if it's just for you to brighten up your time alone, the stories at Dipsia are there to help. It's radically inclusive no matter how you identify or who you are attracted to. You'll find something from sweet to pretty spicy. Things will never get boring because new content is released every week and you'll find things you didn't even know you were interested in. For our listeners, Dipsia is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsiastories.com slash to you. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to Dipsia, D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash T-U. That's dipsiastories.com slash T-U. So I know this might be a time you're tempted to tune out, but really, I really want to encourage you to listen. Take a moment, check in. What are you feeling? Are you relaxed? Are you tense? Maybe a little irritated we interrupted the show. I get that. But as listeners, you know how important it is to be mindful. We've talked about the effects of having a daily meditation and mindfulness skills in improving everything from your sleep and focus, reducing your anxiety, even improving your immune system. But it's not always easy to start and maintain a practice. I know it's not for me. And this is why we're happy to have Calm sponsor our podcast. Calm's an app that provides really excellent guided meditations and daily movement sessions and actually so much more. So you can use it in the morning to really start your day in a present way or in the middle of a stressful day to calm down. So not only do they have meditations, but you can find breathing exercises, relaxing sounds and videos. And I can tell you one thing that I love is that they have sleep stories. So it helps me shift my mind from, oh, I really need to fall asleep. I need the sleep. And it just helps me drift off. I rarely hear the end of one of their stories. That's how well it works for me. So now's the time to jump in. Start the practice you keep saying you're going to do. And you will really help Therapist Uncensored. So for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off, which I think is a great deal. 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash TU. So that's C-A-L-M dot com slash TU for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. All right, let's jump back in. Then what happened to you personally? You said that you weren't floating around on a cloud, (laughs) that this was work that you were intentionally doing, but it sounds exhausting. Like I understand that it is life giving as well, but like you're saying that like you matching the state of the baby makes you more vulnerable in a sense, right? Like your, your awareness to whatever's around you is heightened and you're feeling it more deeply. And then you're also having to manage yourself, like your own chit chat or your own, you know, eye roll or your exhaustion or what have you. So how has this impacted you as an adult human? Oh, so much. So, I mean, really, they started me on, I I was at a period in my life, like I say, 
is sort of in the middle of my NICU career, probably. I was in the NICU for 20 some 20 something years, but where I, my own life was really scattered, super busy. I was working a lot. I had the NICU job. I was consulting. I had two young kids. We went through things personally in our own life and family with, you know, debt and money and trauma to one of our children, just a lot of things. I was at a point of burnout myself. For me, that felt like I was just pretty numb, honestly. You know, I was just running through my life hamster wheel every day and falling into bed, hitting repeat, getting up. And at some point, I became really restless. I wanted something. I thought that there has to be more to adulthood <laughs> than just all these things I'm doing. And so when I sort of went about on a little journey to find out like how, not that intentionally, honestly, but it kind of led me to do some things. I went to a women's retreat, which honestly was a ridiculous thought. I was That was not something I would have ever done. I started doing things that required me to be present and required me to be a little bit more intentional. And I kind of fell in a rabbit hole of, wow, there's this whole other way to live potentially where I'm actually present, where I'm actually not running on the hamster wheel but I didn't know how to get there. I could just tell it was real. <laughs> I, just couldn't, I just couldn't get there. And what was fascinating over time, and, and this was over a long time, but in the end, what was most helpful to me was the same things I was learning from working with the babies in the NICU, which you know I was being responsible for my energy, noticing it, first of all. So I just wasn't even noticing. You know, I might walk down the steps in the morning and energy in one million directions, Never once was I paying attention to all the things I had signed up for, where my energy was going, how I was showing up for other people. So I started by trying to do that in the NICU. And what I learned is that those lessons were the most powerful things that I could carry outside of the NICU as well. Meaning that the same way of, you know, when I'm gonna walk from my car after work into my kitchen with my children, I could also, just like I could before the incubator, stop and say, what energy do I want to bring in this house with me? You know, who do I want to be to these people who are children and are learning from me whether I want them to or not? And I could bring that same practice into my adult life. It was a lot harder, honestly. The NICU, while it seems harder, I had the skill set for that. And I had to learn to adapt that skill set, but it also had a beginning and an end. A treatment session began and ended, you know, so you could kind of hold it together for the session. And then gloves on, off. There were there were giant cues of when I was entering that space in the NICU and when I was leaving it. But at home, it just like never ended. <laughs> there are these people all the time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, as you pause in the driveway, <laughs> and let's, let's say that, you know, we have the wherewithal to pause because we're doing pretty good there already. And you say, what kind of energy do I want to bring, you know, into the home? But that your reaction is more of like, oh, my God, they're going to be crawling all over me. You know what I'm saying? That like I'm trying to like the realistic moment before you enter. So what is that? <laughs> you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So it sounds great, right, on paper. And, you know, I remember very clearly just literally like one of the first days that I remember remembering even to do this, you know, that I thought like I should be doing this at home, but then I would forget and would forget. So the first time I actually remembered to do it and then I literally opened the door and just walked into the scene. And at the time, my kids were in middle school. And I just, everything like went out the window because I walked in and the dogs were barking. There were like literal tumbleweeds of fur rolling around. The backpacks were everywhere. There are already papers all over the kitchen counter. 
there were snack wrappers. I mean, so just the visual of of oh, all the me, things. Everybody, everybody's <laughs> nodding along with you. They're like, "Yep, yep, got yep. it. Seen that." Okay. Yes. So all my my little pretty plans about being intentional seemed to literally go out the window. Like I I I forgot them in that moment because my mother frustration came back of just the visual anarchy that was going on in front of me. And so on this particular day, I remember I forgot. So I was just going at how I always went. And I kind of asked the kids how their days were. I was getting the mail. I was throwing something in the microwave, whatever. And just something reminded me, I don't know what, like, oh, I was trying to be intentional. And I was like, well, clearly I already am not good at this thing, you know, outside the NICU. And then I said, okay, well, I could start now in my head, you know. So I just kind of put the things aside I was doing. And my daughter hopped up on a little stool and I just put everything else aside. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to listen. And she chatted, 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 you know, if you have middle schoolers, just all the chatting. And so it was all the things about the day. And and I didn't do anything else, which was really hard. And I didn't even have a smartphone then. I mean, I can't imagine now I'd be looking at email, I'd be doing whatever. I just remember that at that moment, um, I was looking at her and she's talking away. And I just noticed like these beautiful little colors in her eyeballs that I had not noticed. I mean, my own kid, 10 years old. And I was just like, wow, were those always there? You know, I just talked to her with her. We had a conversation, not a yeah, 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 as I was doing other things. And then she kind of hopped down pretty quickly and was like, da, 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 da. And, but I really, we had like an actual conversation. And then she hopped down and went outside with her brother. And I think what I was thinking as a mom is like, when I come into the house, they need me for like all the minutes. I don't have all of that to give, especially after a day of giving to other people and other humans. And it felt all consuming and exhausting. But in that little moment, I thought, oh, she doesn't need all the minutes. She needed six. She just needed me to listen to her and just connect with her instead of just being around her. She needed me to be with her. And then that didn't really wasn't that long. And then she was quite satisfied. She didn't need to be around me. She needed you to be with her. Yeah. Oh, wow. In six minutes. I think we can do six minutes. That's now that now that sounds more realistic, uh, you know, to the to the ordinary of us. <laughs> yes. But if we but if we back up for just a yeah. second. So you're you're in the freeway of doing stuff. And you said you don't do women's retreats, but you signed up for a women's retreat. So I'm, I'm actually curious about like what this change is, like what was happening. I'm just imagining so many people relating because you know, without the schools and the this and the that, you know, so this all does sound good, but what's the actual transformative process? What were those things that gave you the light bulbs that were actually sustainable? In a nutshell, I would, I'll say first that I didn't know this while I was going through it, just like we don't usually know. When we're in something that's transformative, we're not usually aware of it, except it's really hard. <laughs> what it feels like at the time is this is really hard. But what I know is I just kind of followed what I would call kind of like breadcrumbs. So it wasn't a big like lightning strike or a thing. Now we had already lost all our money. We'd already had the trauma in our family and things like that. So we were reeling for some years. And I remember being, I was actually in Target and I just picked up a random book. I read it. I loved it. It was just, I had no idea, just whatever. I wrote to the author, which I never, ever did in my whole life. Just said, thank you for writing this book. It was really amazing. It had some really poignant things, mother and daughter things, and just about being responsible for your life, what have you. And so through that relationship, that author and I kept in touch. And then she actually recommended, oh, hey, 
I found this blogger, this was circa something in 2000s, this blogger that you, I think you'd like the way she writes and sends me a link. And it ended up being the person who led the retreats that I eventually went on. So this very weird, completely unplanned, I just, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I like this person. Much like when you said Jill, because Jill came to you, like they were just like steps, stepping stones. And so I followed the link. I started reading all this woman's stuff. And then I saw she did retreats. And I thought, well, that looks really cool, but I'm just not that person. So there was something in me in that restlessness and numbness that wanted something more. And I kind of just kept looking for it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a professional avenue. I didn't know if I needed a personal thing. I just needed something different. And I just kind of kept following my curiosity. If something piqued my curiosity, I kind of went into that. So I, I finally got over myself and went on this retreat. And for the first time in probably a decade, it gave me silence and time all just about myself, which as women, we a lot of times tend to think is selfish. And, you know, I was leaving my family for this. We didn't have the money for this retreat, all the things. And I went anyway. And something happened to me in that space where I understood that I had kind of forgotten myself somewhere along the way in motherhood and professional life and marriage and whatever. And I forgot I ever had hobbies. I forgot I ever had things I like to do. And there, the space that place held for me for just a few days started to plant some sort of seed that that said there there is more. But first, you have to take care of yourself. Like you can't. And one of the things I you know really learned from the babies is nothing transforms from a place of depletion. The babies cannot develop all their energy shunted towards survival unless we help them develop as they're surviving. And I was in survival mode. I wasn't developing anymore. And I had to kind of find my way back toward that, if that makes sense. So I, I went to the retreat. I came home feeling like, wow, that's really when I started trying to be more intentional in my life. And in the NICU was after that retreat. And then I just kept following the little things. So I very imperfectly tried this intentional practice. I got better at it in the NICU. I tried to just get good at the moment because honestly, anything else felt overwhelming. But I could commit to a moment and say, I'm going to try to be intentional for the next, you know, five minutes. Or when we sit down to dinner, just have one thought in my head other than slinging food to hungry people. And so I could kind of deal with a moment and I could deal with myself if I messed up the moment and thought, oh, I just didn't handle that well and thought, oh, well, this is a new one. Look at this. So I just really tried to get good at the moment, you know, along the journey. Totally. And, you know, I hear the role of compassion in that. And you said something in your book, you said, uh, being at the end of yourself, that that was one of the things that happened at the retreat, which I thought was such a wonderful, like, was that a realization that you had? Like, how did that come to be? I remember at the retreat, we had to sit in, in the requisite circle and say some things, you know, about why we were there, which is why I, part of what I dreaded the whole time. And I, you know, was thinking, what am I going to say? I don't even know why I'm here the whole time. You know, as it came around and I had not a thought in my head and I just heard myself say, you know, I'm here because my life is screaming at me, period. And then I just didn't know what else to say. And everyone kind of looked at me and then I just looked at the next person like, your turn. <laughs> um, and I did feel like at the end of myself meant I didn't know where else to go. I didn't want to feel this way anymore, but I didn't know the way out. So I was at the end of the self, you know, that I had been 
until this point in my life and I didn't know what to do. And so I did feel like my life was screaming at me like, hello, wake up. This You only get one of these. So or what are you going to do? Well, I particularly like the incremental, just like with the little babies, you kind of supported yourself incrementally. And I love the, you know, I'll just do it right now. Like when you were describing that with your daughter, it's like, oh, I'm not doing it. I'll just do, you know what I mean? Like kind of making that conscious choice to shift into presence. Those are things that any of us can do, right? We don't have to be a master yogi or a teacher of any of these things, but at any given moment. So those of you listening, that you get to do that as well. You would get to do, as she's describing, these little moments of really showing up in presence, with presence, and experiment and just kind of see how that goes. So another thing that you have said in your book that I thought was interesting that I want to go to that we talk a little bit more about what stress looks like in adults as far, you know what I mean? Like how that carries forward from children to adults. You said the expert care without empathy misses out on sharing the powerful energy of our presence. And I think about so many of us are on that autopilot kind of numbed place, but we're still working, whether we're therapists or cardiologists or whatever it is uh, that we're doing, we're still able to do it. We're still able to work but that there's something missing. And so it feels to me like you're talking about that thing that's missing, which has something to do with showing back up for yourself. Yes. So that's, that's good, because that's kind of how I'm, how I'm hearing it. And it also, it fits with a lot of what we talk about on the podcast about kind of how to, what secure functioning really is. This is such a good story of kind of describing the process and that you're not finished, you're not done, that at any given moment we can, come back to ourselves. Would you say it that way or, or what would be your version? Yes, I would say that that is true. And I think in my, my OT brain, what I would say is, you know, that, that we're all in development forever. You know, that the babies, you know, we don't say, oh, we don't shame anyone, a baby, for where they are in their development. We don't say, oh, you, sh you know, hey, man, other, other 27-weekers look like this. You know, we accept that every baby's on their own developmental path. But we don't do that for ourselves, and we also don't do it past childhood much, period, where we, we think like, oh, we're adults, we're literally finished somehow, we're like baked, you know, <laughs> instead of that we're always in development, we have different seasons of life, different stages of life, and that, that we go a long way toward our own self-compassion, and then therefore for other people as well, when we have that sort of grace, if you will, for ourselves of, you know, I don't, at any point in my life, I'm not finished. This is another place that I am. I'm going to get through this. It's going to teach me something that we're always just taking what we learned from previous things and moving it into the future and hopefully discarding things that aren't working for us forever and ever. And, you know, that's how development works. Whether a baby learning to walk falls a million times, we don't consider that a bad thing. It's part of the process. And in fact, falling and getting back up is literally makes them stronger works on their balance, helps them navigate all of their senses and everything. It's useful to fall down and get back up. And yet at some point we stop having any sense of that. And so I definitely felt like in the process, again, that I'm still in forever, of just trying to show up, be responsible for my energy, be intentional, be accountable. So if I'm not who I wanna be in a situation, in an email, in a meeting, in my family also being like, as soon as I can, 
be accountable to that and say like, oh, I'm just, I'm sorry, that is not how I meant to show up and I, I'm going to do better or whatever it is, however, whatever makes sense for the situation. But that allows me to keep moving forward instead of tethering myself to a place back here, you know, and holding myself there for some sort of, you know, self-torture. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is self-torture because we're not, we're surviving just like those little babies. We're surviving, but all of our energy is being shunted, as you said, in that direction. We're, there's not the dealing with it and uh, the learning and the updating as therapists and also, you know, people who work with attachment, especially modern attachment with the neurobiology really baked into it. That's definitely some of the way that we describe it. And, and this has been so interesting to hear the co-regulation, but across disciplines and how that they just feather together so perfectly. There's things that you've said that I can just absolutely guarantee you as people are listening, their nervous systems are calming down. There's an inspiration, there's kind of a hope. So we, we know that you're hitting the right note when like you're regulating the audience, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, I think that what we're talking about is like, if we can gather ourselves in that way and then we can be that, we call it like a tent pole <laughs> that, you know, the one that holds up everything. So if that tent pole does that and takes the oxygen and does the breath and does the pause and gathers themselves, the power of that. And also perhaps the requirement of change, uh, maybe even big changes in one's life, career changes, relationship changes. You did some big things related to your organization, partly in response to this. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so while I was at said retreat, I wrote down a little note just out of nowhere, really, that said, you know, hey, somebody in the world should start an organization for neonatal therapists, OTPT speech, who work in the NICU, because we were all doing this for decades, but just sort of, we just worked in there. There was no group of us and no specialized education, et cetera. And so I wrote that down in a sort of a little goal setting thing, but my, my literal goal was like, someone should go do this and I was going to go find the person. <laughs> so lots of miles between that thought and, and then me being eventually the person to start a national organization for neonatal therapists, which I did actually about a year and a half after that retreat. So from being in that place of numbness and I had no thought of this, not even a tiny smack roll of a thought. Just writing that down, being intentional. I learned to try to protect my own energy, which was half of my job with the babies and and not give it away to every single thing all day long and try to direct it towards something meaningful and purposeful. And, you know, a year and a half later, I founded the National Association of Neonatal Therapists. You know, we're 13 years old now. But all of that really came out of being intentional, directing my energy, protecting it, and allowing myself to not have to get all the way through. So I think one of the historic things in the NICU was we we got really good at survival, but not development. You know, babies, the outcomes didn't improve, even though survival did. And we had to learn that while you're surviving, if you don't direct every ounce of that doesn't have to be direct, energy doesn't have to be directed to survival, you have some room to develop. And so that's my job and was my job in the NICU, but also for ourselves, we don't have to like get through all of our stuff and then we get to grow or then we get to develop or then we get to change our career or marriage or relationship or whatever it is. Like while we're in some sort of stress, we can still develop. 
And I had to learn, I had to go get help. I got, I had therapy, I did acupuncture. I mean, I did all the things to try to really deal with my own baggage that I had and things so that I could put my energy towards something more purposeful. But I, it, it was all together. You know, I didn't like, ta-da, have this before and after experience. And I think that's what we're taught happens, but that's not the truth. Mm, yeah, that's not the truth in the, for the babies or for the adults. The, the, another thing I'm really loving about the conversation is I'm just thinking about all the disciplines that feather into the same conversation, whether it be education or met, you know, medicine, obviously, that's the teachers, attorneys who are dealing with very dysregulated situations and trying to coax the best out of people, those, that kind of thing. It's not owned by anything or anyone or any discipline, but we're all kind of joining and finding the same thing, which is super cool. It is. It's very cool. Including, including spiritual, you know, there's a spiritual component of this. And I'm thinking about Joe Bolte-Taylor with the stroke and kind of coming to it that way. The psych- psychedelics are another part of, you know what I mean? And I guess for the audience, I want to encourage everyone. One of the things I notice about this, you, you said breadcrumbs earlier. You would just follow the next breadcrumb. You weren't clear about your path, but you were clear about sort of listening to yourself. And I think that that describes the journey in, of healing and therapy. And so for those of you that like try to read and look outward for what it is that you're supposed to do, the bad news is it's not out there. <laughs> that you came with this insight that just kind of bubbled up from inside of you. So the thing that you're looking for is that carbonation (laughs) that just comes from the bottom up, letting you know your direction, whether that be about relationship or career or should you get your child evaluated? You know, whatever those questions are, they're so idiosyncratic. There's no way that anyone else will have the wisdom that you know and have in your body. And I guess this is an invitation for everybody listening to kind of do their own pause and their own gathering and to listen and to look for the next breadcrumb and to trust that. So this has been very, very inspiring. Your book is Tiny Humans, Big Lessons. That's available everywhere. I would really recommend it. It's an easy read in the sense that it's not real dense and technical. It's very personable and it's inspiring. But yeah, where would people find you? First of all, thank you. Thank you so much. Easy way is just sueludwig.com easy way to get a hold of me. And then the Nant website, if you have any NICU-related questions, is just neonataltherapists.com. So that's uh, that, but that's the easiest way to get a hold of me and same name on social most places. So yeah, some version of Sue Ludwig. L-U-D-W-I-G. Well, it has been delightful. I so appreciate you sitting down with us. And I know there's going to be light bulbs going off in people's minds about their own lives and just inspiration around us, because I was also thinking about us as tiny humans, probably because I'd been talking about this and getting ready for this interview. What popped up on my feed, of course, was these little babies. And there was this one TikTok, I guess, or Instagram, I don't know what it was, of this, uh, a baby through cesarean, but that was still in the sack. And, you know, you watch the sack come off, and you watch the second sack come off, and then you watch the baby take its first breath. And it is just stunning. And if you want some feels, uh, (laughs) check that out for sure. The work you do is, I don't know if it's thankless, but I certainly would like to thank you on behalf of all of these little kiddos that you have held into existence, you know, and into thriving. It's really beautiful. 
Thank you so much. And just thank you for the invitation. It means a lot to me. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing that you've done is you've held and birthed and nurtured this organization, which I'm sure has been supportive to therapists everywhere. You know what I mean? Neonated therapists everywhere. So that's wonderful. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. If this has been valuable, we encourage you to share it. And it really helps to give us a rating and review that helps other people find us. Is there anything else you want to say is that you want people to know or remember? Just like I said to the babies, just remember that you're more than survival. You're more than survival. That's right. And don't lug your stuff around and just carry it with you. But unpack and take care of yourself. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And we will see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.